Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. I took a few weeks off for my uh, research studies and then Thanksgiving break, so thanks for your patience in that. But it's good to be back again. I trust everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, is enjoying Advent. Don't forget, we are in the season of Advent. Don't skip over that. But yes, also looking forward to Christmas. This is this truly is the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, for this episode, I think it would be appropriate for me to discuss what is currently being discussed before the United States Supreme Court. As I record this, the court is hearing arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which will essentially serve as the most significant challenge to Roe v. Wade uh, that we've seen. So I think now is as good a time as ever for me to record a podcast that has been requested by many people, which is my thoughts on abortion. Now, I've written on abortion before, and I believe I recorded an earlier podcast that touched on it. But I have yet to record a Here Is My Pro-Life Argument podcast. So that's what this will be. Let me begin with a disclaimer. I learned early on in ministry that anytime you talk on abortion, you should just assume that someone listening has had an abortion. And statistically speaking, that decision remains a haunting regret associated with deep shame and guilt and so forth. So I never talk abortion without acknowledging that. If that's you, let me assure you that God's grace is greater than all your sins. And that includes an abortion. It is not unforgivable. I too have past regrets that in my worst moments I wonder if God can forgive and still love me. But though I can't seem to let them go, God has. In Jesus, our failures are not just forgiven, but forgotten. That is to say, God chooses not to remember what we cannot forget. To Him, and at the end of the day, that's the judgment that matters. To Him, they are gone. So my prayer for you, as I get into this discussion, is that you will be as gracious to you as God is to you. Now, with that important word in mind, let me wade out into these controversial waters, hopefully uh, with thoughtfulness and sensitivity. There are so many ways to come at this, but here is what I think would be helpful. In my experience, arguing from a Christian perspective gets us nowhere in this debate. Quoting passages of scripture, referring to uh, church tradition, these things further convince the convinced but mean nothing to those who do not hold my faith commitments. And if the pro-life cause is ever going to get anywhere, it's going to have to think bigger than changing Supreme Court rulings and focus more on changing perspectives. I want Roe v. Wade overturned. But the problem with our disproportionate obsession on Roe v. Wade is that the pro-life cause remains a partisan cause. And the lives of the unborn are therefore caught within our deeply entrenched political commitments. And this gets us nowhere. We spend far too much time focusing on making abortion unconstitutional when we ought to be making it untenable. And to do that, one must argue for the unborn in ways that don't speak only to the choir. 
I don't need to convince evangelicals. I need to convince those who couldn't care less what evangelicals believe, perhaps are even conditioned to hate what evangelicals believe. Now that's a tough task, but let me give it a shot here in this podcast. So my pro-life argument without invoking my religion, or perhaps a better way to say that would be without invoking my overt religion, because in a roundabout way, I am invoking my Christian commitments, because if all truth is God's truth, then even if I'm not quoting scripture or whatnot, if I'm telling the truth, then I'm telling of God. So for example, when I talk about science in a moment, I'm still well within the Christian worldview upon which the sciences rest, but I digress. What I was trying to say is this is my pro-life apologetic without my overt Christian commitments. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take four things that we all agree upon, four things that our culture is committed to and demonstrate how these lead to protection of the unborn. I am pro-life because I am pro-science, pro-reason, pro-justice, and pro-diversity. Let's start with science. The reason why this current case is before the court and why, if it fails, cases will continue to come before the courts is because prenatal science is advancing at such a rapid pace. And every new advancement affirms the humanity of the unborn. What was once an unseen mystery inside the womb has become a masterpiece of scientific discovery. Scientifically speaking, DNA is what makes a human a human. It's the most basic definition that we have. And now we know that at the very moment of fertilization, a separate DNA has been created. From that point forward, we are not discussing a clump of cells or a parasitic lump of tissue. We are discussing human DNA. Now let's talk about the development, another area of rapid scientific discovery. The case that is before the Supreme Court is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which centers around a Mississippi law that would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So I thought what would be helpful is just, let's just consider 15 weeks of development. At 15 weeks, all major organs have been formed, not just formed, but functioning. The kidneys are filtering toxins. The pancreas is producing enzymes. The lungs have been practicing breathing for six weeks. How about this? At 15 weeks, the heart has already beaten over 15 million times. 15 weeks, 15 million heartbeats. The fetus responds to touch. The fingers are developed. They move independently. They are being used to explore their environment. Speaking of fingers, the unborn not only sucks their thumb at 15 weeks, they have a preference for their right or left thumb, meaning they are already right or left-handed. And then there's the serious dilemma of fetal pain. Justice Sotomayor uh, was correct during her questioning on this issue that the scientific consensus at this point is that pain is conclusively felt at 24 weeks. But she was disingenuous when she presented those findings that show pain at 15 weeks as some sort of fringe minority to be disregarded. In reality, the pain threshold has always been 24 weeks, but once again, as science develops, it's the new findings that keep moving that threshold up. I'll give you one compelling example. Stuart Derbshire, 
from the National University of Singapore, is a brain mapping researcher and expert in pain. He's also a pro-choice consultant who in 2010 presented a report to the Royal College of Gynecologists that rejected the possibility of fetal pain before 22 weeks. But now, in 2021, Derbshire, to his credit, has abandoned his previous position and says, quote, The evidence and a balanced reading of that evidence points toward an immediate and unreflective pain experience mediated by the developing function of the nervous system from as early as 12 weeks. So my point is that the research on fetal pain, which for obvious reasons is a huge part of this discussion, is decisively moving in one direction, and if that trend continues, it will not be long until the consensus has moved toward a much earlier threshold. And then there's the massively significant question of viability. Abortion supporters are facing a real dilemma. For the vast majority, uh, viability is the key in the abortion debate. And historically, that has been around 24 weeks. But the problem is that because of scientific advancement, the viability threshold, much like the pain threshold, continues to move in the earlier direction. For example, last year a baby survived after being born at 21 weeks. And he is now uh, 16 months old and thriving. And you know as well as I do that prenatal science and medicine is only going to continue its rapid improvement and the viability line will continue to move. So where do we find, where do we define life? And more importantly, the taking of life. From a purely scientific perspective, where do we define the taking of life? Is it DNA? Uh, is it formed and functioning organs, brain activity, pain, viability? In every single case, the science is increasingly on the side of those who affirm the humanity of the unborn child. So I am pro-life because I am pro-science. And this leads into my next point. I am pro-life because I am pro-reason. We say trust the science, but this is an interesting trust commitment. The scientific discipline itself is meant to be a neutral and objective process, and the best scientists hold to that neutrality. But then there is the dilemma of what we do with the science, and I mean that quite literally. What we do with science implies we do something with it, and this is true. Our deeply held commitments are more important to us than scientific findings. And so what we do is we take science and we filter and we spin to make it fit our commitments. But what this leads to is absurdums that contrast reasoning. This was on display in, again, Justice Sotomayor's questioning where she compared the fetus response to stimuli to those who are brain dead and respond to stimuli. Meaning, if you poke someone who is brain dead, their bodies at times will move. So this somehow invalidates the humanity of a fetus who also responds to stimuli. Okay, let's be reasonable. When a person is brain dead, they are, by definition, dead. A fetus is the opposite. They are not at the end of life, but the beginning. Suppose, for example, brain death was reversible. 
Suppose a brain-dead person responding to stimuli was the sign of life as it is in the fetus. Well, in this scenario, doctors would be morally obligated to do everything within their power to protect and preserve that patient's life. So with respect to Justice Sotomayor, and I mean that, with, with respect to her opinion, it's simply absurd to compare a fetus with their whole life before them to a brain-dead patient. But this is what we are forced to do to defend abortion— unreasonable mental gymnastics around this ethical debate. People say, for example, a fetus isn't conscious. Okay, does that mean we can kill people in a coma? They say fetus isn't fully developed. Well, neither is an infant. Can we kill those until they reach full development? The point I'm making is that to defend abortion, in my humble opinion, after years of engaging these arguments— To defend abortion requires we abandon common-sense reasoning in ways we would never do in other ethical dilemmas. It honestly reminds me of what uh, slavery advocates were forced to do in the 19th century. This is a big focus of my doctoral studies. Chattel slavery thrived based upon the dehumanizing of Africans. They were less than human and therefore void of human rights. But once their humanity began to be established, then it required a lot of ethical maneuvering to defend slavery. And this, I believe, is the problem one faces in defending abortion. The more science humanizes the unborn, the harder it is to make a reasonable argument for their termination. Ross Douthat wrote a piece in the New York Times this week that is the best pro-life argument I've ever seen published in the New York Times. And what he does is, with compassion but utmost precision, expose the fallacious reasoning of those who seek to justify abortion. And so instead of going further here in this point, I'll just point you to his op-ed. It's entitled, uh, The Case Against Abortion, and was published November 30th, 2021, in case someone is listening to this further down the road. So pro-science, pro-reasoning, next, pro-justice. I'm not going to spend much time here because I've written and recorded on this topic before. But what I've said is that in this culture of justice, where we are seeing this renewed concern for the marginalized and oppressed, where doing justice and loving mercy is again receiving the preeminence it deserves, my only question is why? Why do the unborn not fit the cause of justice? We want to defend the vulnerable against the powerful. Is there anyone more vulnerable than the unborn? We want to give voice to the voiceless, and yet the unborn literally have no voice. We want to fight for those without power, exploited and cast off by the interests of those in power. Is this not literally the definition of abortion? Our society is censoring speech that could possibly incite violence against the vulnerable, while completely indifferent to the violence taking place in the womb. How can we truly say we care for the least of these while callously neglecting literally the least among us? And I think what's so tragic about it all is that my progressive friends are right to point out how bad evangelicals have been on justice. It's a glaring deficiency in our religion. We can debate the best ways to care for the helpless, 
but I'm willing to concede that progressives absolutely do care for those conservatives tend to neglect. And I received that critique, and I'm challenging my congregation to care for life outside the womb as much as life inside the womb. But is it possible to look past tribal partisanship and hear my critique? What group is more vulnerable, voiceless, and victims of violence than the unborn? I am pro-life because I am pro-justice. Okay, final point. I am pro-life because I am pro-diversity. If there is one thing our culture now values, it's cultural diversity. We lament our imperialistic past, the tendency of white Western culture to look down upon other cultures as inferior or even impose our culture upon theirs. We are asked to humbly listen and learn from the diversity of perspectives rather than simply assuming our way is the only way. And this is a good thing. But how committed are we to diversity when it comes to abortion? Are we actually going to listen to non-Western opinions on abortion? Because speaking candidly, other cultures outside of totalitarian states like China and North Korea, who have more in common with us on this issue, (laughs) every other culture views our abortion practices as, speaking candidly, barbaric. And that even includes our Western countries that we assume would be far more progressive than us. Germany, Belgium, France... These quote-unquote liberal societies, they don't allow abortion after 12 weeks. So European legislation actually is more similar to the Mississippi law that is currently being discussed and debated before the Supreme Court. Mississippi, which I know progressives look at as helplessly archaic and behind the times, Mississippi has more in common with other European nations. But then outside the West, cultures don't even have a category for what we are doing. My favorite example of this took place at a United Nations panel discussion on the topic of maternal health in Africa. So a European woman, a white European woman, was ironically caught lamenting colonization while attempting to colonize her maternal beliefs and practices upon African females. Her odd argument was that to avoid colonization, you have to allow cultures to be free to make their own choices, and therefore women in Africa must be free to make their own choices with their own bodies. But this is how Europeans view abortion, not Africans. If you want to allow Africans to be free to make their own choices, then you have to allow them to view abortion the way they view abortion, which isn't the way we view it in the West. So let me play for you the powerful response from the African delegate. And you will also hear the applause from the contingency outside the West. I am from a tribe called the Igbo tribe in Nigeria. If I tried to translate in my native tongue what it means for a woman to choose what to do with her body, I couldn't. Most of the African native languages don't even have a way of phrasing abortion to mean anything good. Now, 
as, a com as communities of people and as societies, where it, it actually then becomes colonization and neocolonization is that people from the Western world come to Africa and try to give us these kinds of language that we could never translate into our native tongue. They tell us that it actually can mean something for a woman to do something with her body, which isn't really morally uh, bad. But anyway, the first thing that we have to think of and remember is that as communities, which was one thing I highlighted right at the beginning, culturally, most of the African communities actually believe by tradition, by their, their cultural standards, that abortion is a direct attack on human life. So for anybody to convince a woman that abortion is good, Sorry. So I'm sorry. So for anybody to be able to convince any woman in Africa that abortion is actually a good thing and can be a good thing, you first of all have to tell her that what her parents and her grandparents and her ancestors thought her were, is actually wrong. You're going to have to tell her that they have always been wrong in their thinking. And that, madam, is colonization. Do you see? You can hear in her voice and feel in the applause the disgust over the arrogance of the West to tell Africa how wrong they are on abortion. And so my question to us, who are seeking to repent of our colonization and listen to other perspectives, are we willing to do that when it comes to abortion? Abortion support is one of the least diverse opinions on the planet, relegated to white Western cultures or population control regimes. So why am I pro-life? I am pro-life because I am pro-science, pro-reason, pro-justice, and pro-diversity. Thank you for listening on this heavy topic in particular. Um, if this has been helpful, then consider sharing it with others, maybe on social media, as well as rating and reviewing. And we will be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch. Mm -hmm.